0: Insights, solutions, and networking all come together at RSA Conference. Join a global cybersecurity community at rsaconference.com forward slash ITSPMAG24.
1: And hello, everybody. You're very welcome to an episode of Redefining Cybersecurity here live, kind of live, from InfoSecurity Europe in London uh we're here on the show floor just outside of the keynote stage uh, where we get to chat with all kinds of folks and we didn't get a chance to talk to rob black before the events. we caught him here in person he's with me now rob thanks for joining oh
0: delighted to be here it's a, buzz, a great day and i'm looking forward to our conversation all right it's a uh, good energy here definitely it is it's uh, is. nice to see everyone back and buzzing again <laughs> it's know.
1: been too long it has been too long it has been too long so you um well, before we get into it, so I mean, I'm intrigued by anybody who's in university and doing research because you get to you get some good perspectives that aren't always connected to some things that either push you too far or hold you back on something. So, tell us a little bit about what you work on, what you're doing. uh, the uh well, I guess
0: um, I've got several hats on, so I'll share the uh, different yeah, hats yeah. I wear. So. I'm a lecturer of information activities at the uh, Defense Academy in the UK, uh, where um, I work uh, with military personnel, um, encouraging them to think about how we integrate cyber operations into military operations or vice versa. I think at first it started thinking (laughs) about integrating cyber in and now it's probably a case of weaving military back into cyber. And we look at the challenges of how does it fit as a tool of statecraft? Um, Does it fit closer to intelligence operations, more like covert action or actual warfare? I used to be involved in the National Cyber Deception Laboratory, and former Deputy Director there, where we looked at researching and exploring the application of deception in proactive cyber defence. So how do we engage our adversaries in our networks? How do we get them to double-guess everything? How do we get them to question their steps, question our defences, and make them actually less successful in their activities, which was great fun. Bringing in that war-fighting mindset, in the information age which you, know, you don't have the physical dimension you can't go and punch the attacker on the nose right. you haven't you've got very limited physical recourse to your attacker but you can engage their mind their decision-making and too often we uh, we forget that when we think about our threat actors it's capability and intent so they're making decisions all the time but we engage them thinking about their technical capabilities not realizing that there's a series of decisions they have to make so that that was fascinating research and then alongside that I uh, run a university student competition in cyber policy Uh, UK Cyber 912 strategy challenge which is great fun thinking about bringing through the next generation of cybersecurity leaders we've got a much more holistic approach to strategy and planning so not just thinking about the technical aspects of the incident but thinking about the so what's and the implications for the business the organization the government that might be being affected and it's great to see this pipeline of young talent coming into the industry we're really going to make waves and hopefully lead us to a much more secure future so and then the last job I have the last one I have is working with the British Foreign Office organising um, policy-based discussions and dialogues on topics of interest in cyber intelligence and warfare as well so i keep myself busy
1: in the way so, <laughs> so and it, it sounds like the role of a CISO where they're they wearing many hats right? yeah uh, yep you, you have the policy you have the operations you have the the team you're trying to build and then keep skilled and, and so just a lot of stuff going on Excellent. i know um you can talk about any of those roles if you want but i know Here at the conference, we're specifically looking at the legal aspect of cyber, and I think you're on a panel later today. And I think you're bringing an interesting point you mentioned. I I think so. I I think we're too. um, Well, I think we really
0: need to think about what we mean by legality in cyberspace, and not just in terms of which jurisdiction does it fall under and how do we process certain things. But when we think about cyber crimes, are we bringing conventional, traditional perspectives on crimes to the fight? So. Most people will either look at criminal law or the legalities of cyber crime based on the Computer Misuse Act in the UK, um, and uh, or in data protection, data privacy, and, and actually whilst I can see why they're being applied, there's something distinctly missing in our understanding of, of informational harm and informational damage, so how do we go about categorising the hurt that has been caused? If I wipe your hard drive, have I physically damaged it? well I haven't physically damaged it, it can still be used so I haven't stolen it either but that data's gone it's not been there and I can't function I can't perform whatever duties are so how do we bring in that concept of harm and hurt in this informational virtual age and I think it really does need us and, it, and it, I guess it really really does need us to consider what tools we can bring to this discussion um, because it applies everywhere it applies at the organizational level but it also applies at the state level so when you come to the international law and you look at cyberspace and the applications of laws in cyberspace there you're going down two distinct paths you're going down the intelligence gathering path or you're going down the war fighting path which is the kinetic equivalent so did not your amount to an act of war The discussion about how much damage was done how many how many terabytes of information needed to be destroyed before not pet you became an act of war the insurance industry are having challenges thinking about exactly that in terms of coverage but actually it's pulling old Conventional tired legal regimes into this modern digital age, and I don't
1: think it's fit for purpose. Right? Can you can you talk to me a bit about because as you're you're describing that to me, you mentioned insurance, and I'm like, oh, that's that's a a completely different part of this equation as well. Yeah. Because there's there's a legal arm. You have uh, the, the harmed entity or individual. You have. Perhaps somebody who's suing, or yeah, I guess that person suing whomever, right, yep. or looking for justice in that regard. You have the insurance who has to pay out on it, you have the, the, the policy folks who presumably kind of set the stage for that in, in most regards. Um, how do we, are, are there any strange things about that connection where we're, I, I feel like maybe we're fighting or not working toward the same thing so
0: i think interestingly i i was struck a few years ago um, i was listening to a presentation by uh, one of the lead individuals at beasley insurance and it struck me that uh actually the insurance industry have to be ahead of the curve so they have to be able to work out the premium and the cost involved if you if we take um, an insurance policy out so they have to be anticipating those future threats. They have to be anticipating those costs and molecules. So they have to be really at that cutting edge and beyond and anticipating where the environments going to move to, where the threats can move to. Um, but I also think they have a massive contribution in not necessarily the regulatory space, but in shaping how the industry and the organizations that are utilizing cyber security will act. So you know, if you think about it in a traditional sense, you'll get a reduction in your premium in your, for your car insurance if you have installed extra safety features. Right? Yeah, so if you've been installed the latest theft detection kit, then you'll get a reduction. That will come into the due diligence insurance companies will be doing on their on their potential customers. And I think we're seeing that already where you know, the insurance companies are expecting you to utilise their uh, forensic investigations teams or their incident response teams and they're acquiring these capabilities so they can give you the whole package because they want to have confidence in the product that you're then using because that then affects the premiums that they'll be charging you. And I think we'll see, particularly with the use of deception technology, I think we'll see a rising tide of insurance companies leading an expectation on individual organisations to put in layers of layers of protection, layers of defence, in order to bring that premium down, or that, or they won't insure them. You know, it's sort of you have to meet this minimum threshold, otherwise we won't insure you. Right. And I think that's going to really shape the market a lot more. And we're beginning to see incidents of that in in uh, in the US. With I think the US DoD are looking at. Um, enhancing some of the NIST regulations so that if you're gonna be a supplier to the DOD, you have to have a certain degree of uh, deception technology layered into your defense networks and other defensive measures in so that you become a much more harder target that then can work with the DOD with a level of confidence that you're not gonna get compromised and have a supply chain attack or whatever it might be. And I think that is gonna be the mindset we're moving to. I think really interestingly, if you think about that model, we then have to think about how do we take on a more aggressive defensive posture Um, And that brings in, my argument, the the role of deception again, deception technologies. Not just how we currently use them for threat intelligence and threat gathering, but in fighting back and fighting our attackers. And that doesn't mean the the red line of going hack back, but it means how do we make our network much more robust? How do we confuse our attackers? How do we make them doubt the value of the material that they're going into steal? And that, I think, is where there's a real opportunity for some really exciting research some really exciting capability development and some really exciting thinking. But if you're in that space, this is where it comes back to the legalities there is no real legal terrain here, because you've right. got the computer misuse Act in the UK, so you can't do anything to a computer, which is already hampering a lot of vulnerability researchers because they could be breaking the law, just doing the very research to make the system secure. It's age-old yeah. legislation, which you know, was never written with the awareness of the internet age as it is today, but it's being fighting with our hands behind our back. And then we've got the computer issues, data protection issues and so on, which are absolutely relevant and personal issues, but don't necessarily help us think about how do we protect the data. We think of the organizations, um, I won't name any particular organizations that have been compromised recently, but think about it. They're in a situation where I think there's a real fundamental question over what support they should be getting from government. Because if they get hacked, they might lose their data, they might get a tipper or advice from National Cyber Security Center for example to say there's something coming watch out there's a bad hostile state actor who might be coming after your networks or more likely you'll get compromised you'll have your data stolen and you'll be asked to share the tippers of that attack with an information sharing community so all of your collective colleagues or your competitors will be aware of the TTPs of the attackers so they can protect themselves and don't get compromised so you're suffering there and then to make things worse because of the data protection legislation which again is written in a right way with the right spirit, but the application of it means that if you are compromised by a hostile state-threat actor, you can end up being penalized by a large fine when you're already fighting the fight. It doesn't seem that we've really brought the mindset that we need to in this fight. We've, we're seeing it in a very regulatory, passive mindset of assurance, regulation, and building back, rather than the fact that we are going
1: to war every day to protect our networks. Right. And we need to see it like that. Yeah, and for, for me, I mean, when, when we, when I think of legal aspects here, I think of liability and I know uh, there's a gentleman in, in the States, uh, Jeremiah Grossman, sure. who has been talking for years now about software warranties, yep. where almost every other product in the world has a warranty that it will do what it says it's supposed to do sure. and not in cybersecurity. Oh, yeah. And so, they're not, the vendors are not liable companies are spending millions and millions of dollars trying to raise the security posture never get to 100 percent they're the ones that lose out they won't and where it gets interesting in my perspective is if it is an act of war or nation states or something that the insurance companies have drawn a line and says we can't afford to insure these types of activities therefore your policy won't won't be paid out the, the companies are being left to hold the bag here after spending billions of dollars and, and assuming that you're being covered as well right. and, and I think the, um, I think it gets
0: a little bit more complicated than that I understand the, the Lloyds of London um, act of war note um, that came out a couple of years ago but I think it creates a worrying situation where you can have exactly the same incident affect you and in one context, it's covered legally and with your insurance and the other context it isn't covered because it's deemed to be an act of war because there's some other political incident happening at the same time let's take not picture if not had happened this year it would have been integrated into the military campaign russian activities and it would have been swept under that carpet of an act of war yeah. it happened a few years ago actually the same incident same disruption to mers but not part of a, a larger military campaign then it comes into a definition at what point does it become a military campaign, if you ask the Ukrainians, the Russians have been interfering in Ukraine for a lot longer than the recent intervention, physical intervention, back in February 22. So you get this very slippery gray area of, well, it's defined as an of war here and therefore we're, we're exempt, and actually it's not an of war here, but it's the same incident and we're covered. That feels a very murky territory to be
1: training in. If I was a C-cell or a board, I would be questioning that how fair that is, to be honest. Yeah. So yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it doesn't seem fair to me. and. What I'm afraid of, and especially, I mean, we talk big international, multinational companies, presumably they make a lot of money and can invest a lot of that money in, in uh, security solutions. But as you move down the stack to some of the smaller SME type companies, I, I'm afraid that we're putting too much onus on them to buy all the t- technologies and have the teams in place to manage them or perhaps even outsource of them, but it's an expense um, in addition to the checklist uh, uh, yeah, policy think, thing and right? I think
0: even more if you go next stage further as yeah. well we're encouraging cyber security behaviors in the general population but I can't tell you how many times my data has been compromised by supply chain attacks over here over right. there with this organization in here so why do I bother? I, and I mean this generally. Here's, here's a cybersecurity professional who has concerns about where my data is. I can't even find out where my data is. I can't even tell you how many times it's been compromised over the last few years. Um, so, what difference does it make if I don't if I don't protect my data as as robust as possible? Because it's going to get stolen, or it probably already has been stolen. And I think we're going to get to that apathy very quickly. Yeah. And I think we're going to lose the general population, even if we haven't actually got them at the moment. And then you've got organisations again. Balancing cyber security protections against you know, insurance for this, health and safety measures for this, post pandemic preparations.
1: Yeah. At what yeah. point with, do you with innovation it? Yeah, yeah, and, and the option to
0: grow? <laughs> and, and and I think actually realizing at that point that uh, you know, we have to empower and encourage and support. I think it really does come clear at in that instance because it's going to wane away, and and the fear of compromise probably isn't enough because actually you don't know where that compromise is gonna come from. You don't know if it's a spearfishing over there or an activity on somewhere else in the network. You're gonna find yourself just chasing your tail and thinking this is too difficult. So I think we really need to change the, the, the approach that we're taking to
1: really highlight what we need to prioritize first and ensure that, that level of security that we need. So where's where the legal space gonna go then, you think? Um, because I mean, we, we've seen a case where a CISO It was tried, right?
0: Uh, I I, I don't know if that's the right Yeah, I I, I think it would be interesting to see if that has an impact on CISO decision-making about becoming CISOs because, you know, that liability is a real concern there, as you say. Um, I guess my my feeling is that as much as I might talk about we need to think about a new approach to informational harm, informational damage, that is a significant mindset shift from the current status. I could only see something like that happening if at the geopolitical level there was an incident that made us revisit um, our considerations around kinetic equivalence. So, um And that I think would come about with an activity against a, a NATO nation where the rest of NATO decide that it doesn't amount to Article 5 support and then we're going to have a, a real stretching of the alliance. To be honest, that's where I thought Russia was going to push us with Ukraine and I know Ukraine isn't necessarily part of the NATO and the Article 5 but Russia or you know with the Baltics or anywhere else was able to create such tension between the um, coalition partners it could really bring down the alliance and that would be a real significant shift Um, so I think at that level we might see some grand strategic impact and change to how we approach these things but until then we're going to stick to the the kind of tried and tested kinetic equivalents how much damage how much harm and how much data has been lost and we go down the intelligence route and um, so that doesn't fill me with much hope, I guess. Right. Um, and then I think when we, at that point, it then flips into kind of the private security, world, privacy security world of making sure we've regulated as much and ensured the protection of us and yeah, falling under GDPR. So I think all of us recognise the, the progressiveness with which the GDPR was in the EU back, back when it was introduced. Um, but actually, recognising that whilst it was progressive, it also has really shaped. Um, the user's experience as well. You know, you look at the, uh, every time you go on the website now, you get the accept cookies, how many people actually care that, and just rapidly really click through and push it? So yeah. is that the behavior that we want as a result of this legislation? Yes, how we protecting it will being much more considerate at an organizational level, but are we moving forward the states with regards to how do we protect ourselves best? I think that's the questions we've really
1: got to start reflecting on. Yeah, and I think, I think you make a great point. For me, I, I, I'll, I'll use the word culture. And I think it's not just a company culture, it's not just a one society culture, it's an international culture. And it, I, I don't know, I feel that the, the entities that are responsible are not being held liable. And I, and I think we're, we're kind of just pushing the rocks around, and, and it's landing on different different folks here. And, and there. I think that culture thing is is
0: absolutely critical. And I think it also spreads across the industry. You know, we you know, I think if you look at the issues of burnout in the industry, particularly the front line, the software operation center, the security operation centers, the SOCs, you know, the threat hunters, the analysts working on their front line, they're burning out. They're burning out because most of the job opportunities are focused on how much I'm going to earn to do the same job I'm doing. And actually, if we instill a warrior mindset in them, train them up as cyber Jedi, cyber warriors, get them excited and passionate about the work they're doing rather than just the handle turning of alert monitoring or whatever it might be they're doing. Get them to get into the fight. I, I really like the idea of, you know, if you think of computer games, you know, rage quitting is a thing. The Game designers will create computer games to make it really hard to get through the levels so that the right. players throw their toys out the pram, throw their keyboards out the window or whatever it might be. What are we doing like that? How can we empower our cyber soft operators to be the end-of-level bad guys in our networks? Who, are, you know, who is old Wario, if you think of the Mario brothers? Who is old Wario in our networks? Who is gonna make our attackers fear and consider how they get past this bad guy? But we don't instill that culture in our, in our teams. We worry about burnout, we absolutely do, but actually, we gave them something to be passionate about That'd and hard, it would be much more fun, <laughs> much more exciting, yeah. you'd have a much better engagement, and I bet you'd have a much more secure network, and you'd have much more innovative solutions to your network defence problems as well. Right. And I think you'd have a greater retention policy as well, because you wouldn't have the people cycling through six months here, 12 months there, get on to the next job. And the key determinant is, I'm working from home in the same organisation, whether it's organisation A, B and C, I occasionally pop into work, the only difference is my pay packet, actually, this organization wants me to belong, wants me to train up as a Jedi, whatever it might be. You could see how
1: that would make a really compelling employment and retention case. Yeah. And I can see where if, if you're actually gaming the level of your posture, yeah. you really know your environment at that point. Absolutely, yeah, but you need, to, yeah, you need yeah. to, you It's need not to... just, okay, I have an alert, let me see what it is, where it's from, where it might be headed. It's a very siloed view, right? Just one thread of the bigger picture. If you can game the whole posture.
0: And just imagine how your conversations would change yeah. with your tech providers and your vendors at that point. Because you're not just looking at an option and abstractly comparing it against the MITRE checklist or you know the latest five-star ranking. You're looking at what that tool set can do for you and how you can use it in that fight. And that actually makes it a much better conversation. You'll see product development teams working on designing yeah. the latest kit. You'll have teams looking at how we integrate it better and i think overall it will just really enhance the defensive mindset the defensive posture and overall the, the defensive state of your network
1: yeah. um, and i think that's really exciting cybersecurity. Yeah. Uh, cyber security. it is cool that is cool well i'm uh, i'm excited to, to charity bob i mean robert i should say and uh yeah maybe i don't know <laughs> I could talk to you for hours. I was thinking sure. it would be great to talk to you after your session as yep, well. Yeah, I'm happy to. But yeah, uh, yeah so if, maybe if we find time more this week, uh, that'd be awesome. great. Or any time after are Very welcome on. I, look I think, forward to it. I think there's a lot of a lot of points in here we can we can unpack further. Yeah. I think we could definitely have a few longer yep. conversations about that. So. so. But in the meantime, enjoy your session, looking at the legal thing, bring your, uh, I'm excited to, to hear you bring your, your, okay, your cool. unique viewpoint to the conversation. I think everybody's gonna be on the same page. You're gonna mix it up a bit. I think ourselves. it's gonna be an interesting <laughs> challenge, I think.
0: So we should have fun, no doubt. Yeah. We've got a good panel, so yeah. be exciting to be on the keynote stage yeah. at InfraSec and uh, hopefully uh, warm
1: up the audience and uh, get them excited and get them asking questions as well. That's fun. Well, Thanks a million for your time, appreciate it. Thanks very much.